Once you've checked, then open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26 is an interesting chapter because it is the only chapter devoted solely to Isaac and God's working in Isaac's life. And God's going to do basically the same things in Isaac's life that he did in Jacob's life, or that he did in Abraham's life, that he does in who else's lives? Our lives. So there are great lessons for us to learn as we've been walking with Abraham and watching Abraham learn to trust God, come to a place of fuller faith. And we're going to see the same thing with Isaac. Isaac grows up, and he too. He, he, you, you can only hitchhike for so long on your parents' faith. Isn't that true? And, then, and at some point, at some juncture in your life, you have to decide yourself, am I going to trust God? And so now it's Isaac's turn for God to, to really work in his life, and he's going to do some awesome things. Now, if you recall from the last chapter when we left off, there, there was a problem. Who recalls what the problem is? Or is there a problem? Anybody? Jacob and his brother Esau, trouble at home amongst the brethren, right? How many have kids? Ever have trouble amongst the kids? <laughs> Arguing, quibbling, it's my toy, I'll trade you this for that, don't wear my clothes, right? All sorts of things. Well, we saw that uh, Jacob seized on the moment and uh, convinced Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. But there's trouble, the trouble is just beginning. There's not only just trouble at home, now there's a famine in the land. Oh, great. We're told in chapter 26, verse 1, now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 10, We're told that there was a famine in the land during the days of Abraham. So there's a number of things that Abraham and Isaac will have in common. And then there's some some differences. One of the things they have in common is this famine. Abraham's famine was about 75 years earlier. So there's a famine in the land. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, presumably... Gerar is on the coast, where, Ab- where Isaac is, down in Bir Lahairoi. That's in, that's in the southern, more interior area. Okay, you see where Gerar is. That's where he's going to go. It's more on the coast. Now, Bir Lahairoi is not on that map. But it's more interior into the south of Gerar. So he's going to go up to Gerar, the land of the Philistines, where presumably it's cooler, and there, the famine is less severe, possibly. So that's why he goes up there. And while he's up there, the Lord appeared to Isaac. Now this is the the first time that we have a record of the Lord appearing to Isaac. And he gives Isaac some specific instructions. And what are those instructions? Don't go where? To Egypt. Now Egypt is always going to be pictured as... The, the place of refuge, the breadbasket. Uh, Mary and Joseph go down to Egypt to protect Jesus, right? We'll see that God sends uh, Jacob and his sons down to Egypt and they'll grow into a great nation in Goshen, that district in Egypt. So Egypt is always looked at by people as like the breadbasket, the land of plenty, uh, a place of refuge. And you recall that who else went down to Egypt earlier? Anybody remember? Abraham, remember? His father. There was a famine in the land. Again, Genesis chapter 12. Because of the famine, Abraham went to Egypt. Now, had he asked God if he should go to Egypt? He just kind of took matters into his own hands and did what made sense. 
Sometimes we do things that seem to us to make sense. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is what? Devastation. It's death. It's always wise to say, Lord, now, it makes sense to go to Egypt, but I want to acknowledge you first. I want to ask you first, shall I go to Egypt? Abraham did not seek God. Presumably, Isaac was tempted also to go to Egypt. This is why God says to him, don't go to Egypt. Because maybe in Gerar, uh, the famine was as severe as it was in Bir Lahairoi, where he was residing. And so God says, don't go. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Wow. Stay in this land for a while. The land where the Philistines are. Now, the Philistines are not a great, a great nation yet. They're just a small group of people who have migrated up from what we would know as um, um, the Greek islands and, and down below. They've just migrated up, and they're just a few of them. They're just a few little tribes, so... It's not a big, big investment here. So he says, he says, I will be with you and will bless you. So you stay here. Don't worry about the famine. Don't go running down to Egypt. Because I want you here because I'm going to teach you and train you. I'm going to teach you and train you. Because you're critical to my purpose. What is God's purpose? Anybody? God have a purpose? His purpose overall really is to what? Bring glory to himself. The heavens declare his glory. Everything speaks of the glory of God. This isn't, God is not egocentric, by the way. We, we tend to think, oh my, well, he just wants to call attention to himself. No, he, he is worthy of every aspect of his created order to bring him praise and glory. We, we understand something of hero worship, don't we? Just in our own temporal arena. How we exalt people. We exalt institutions. We exalt things. We say, wow, wow. Well, God's, God's purpose is to bring glory to himself, which is right. And his, he's going to do that by reconciling, taking upon himself the great work of reconciling his creation to himself, which is estranged because of sin. So he has a purpose and he has a plan about how to do that. And his plan is incredibly unique. His plan is to offer himself as a ransom to buy back all that is rightfully his. And God is going to himself become a man in the person of Jesus Christ, come down here, live amongst us, and be obedient, humble himself even to death on a cross so that we might know him so that we might, in his whole creation, be restored and that we could enjoy relationship with him. We don't deserve this. You know that. We don't qualify for it. We're not worth it. But in his great goodness, this is his purpose and his plan. Isaac is critical to his plan. We go way back to Genesis 3.15. He pronounced there the beginning of this great plan that he began before he ever created anything. He had it in mind. And when man rebelled, all of creation came under the curse of sin. God instituted this great plan to fulfill his purpose. And we've been tracing and tracking the lineage of, and the thread of redemption down through the early patriarchs, and now it's gone through Abraham, and Abraham has handed it off now to Isaac. Isaac is at a crucial juncture. 
And he is not in and of himself going to trust the Lord, but God is going to work in his life and he is going to train him to trust him. Does that make sense to you? So he says, stay in this land for a while. I will be with you and bless you. Underline that sentence, that part of the sentence in your Bible. I will be with you and bless you. I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. That map that we just had up there, that whole area. When Abraham walked the the length and the breadth of the land, God says, wherever your foot trods, I'll give it all to you and to your descendants. So God's just rehearsing his promise here to Isaac that he had sworn to Abraham. He says, I will give you all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. There's a famine in the land. Things aren't going well at home. Things are going to heat up, by the way. (laughs) There's a suggestion here for us, I think, that sometimes there's a threat of a famine in our own life. We talk about trials, we talk about difficulties. But how about a famine? A situation where it really, really is desperate. What do we do? Where do we turn? Really? Are we tempted to flee to where the proverbial grass seems greener? Is that a temptation for us? Oh, yes. Oh, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. And we look over the fence. I read a book years ago. It was called, the title of the book was called The Myth of the Greener Grass. It may look greener over there, but you know, you still got to mow it. <laughs> Comes with its whole set of problems. God has you right there. He says, stay in this land. I will what? Be with you and I will bless you. Stay there. The temptation is to escape to Egypt. To go to a place that seems easier, more comfortable, less hassle, no problems, less grief. Certainly we all want respite from that, don't we? But running away from our problems is not the solution, is it? Any number of married people, even believers who are married, the marriage isn't going well. It's like a, the, the marriage is like a toaster. It's not working. So I'm going to get a new toaster. No, 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 no. You're the marriage. You work it. You look around at other couples and you say, gosh, they have such a great marriage. Why can't we? They got just the same problems you do. My wife yells at me. Yes, yes, I know. You would find it hard to yell at me, I understand. I say things and do things that tighten her jaw. But if we would if we would just say, Lord, you've got me here. You've got me planted here. It's so hard for me. I'm so easily distracted. I feel like I'm in the midst of a famine. If we would just remember him. And remember his words to Isaac because they're words to all of us. 
I will be with you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. Trust me. Now that trust me is not a passive thing. It's an active participation. Implicit in trust me is do what I tell you to do. Walk in obedience to what you know. Now the question is, will I do that? Will I bow my knee and say, yes, Lord? If I would just not be so quick to give up. How many would say this morning you would admit to the need to grow spiritually and personally? Anybody? Hmm. Let me see. Keep your hands up. I just want to make sure everybody see who isn't who has no need to grow. George, get those hands up, buddy. All right. No, your hand. Yeah. Don't be raising your wife's hand. How many would, how many would assume you have a, a blind spot or two in your life? Things you are clueless about. Other people see, but they just won't tell you. Does God want to grow us? Yeah. The Bible tells us very simply. He is what? He is transforming us from glory to glory. He is, he is conforming us to the likeness of a son. Implicit in that is growth. He's growing us. He's, oh, I don't want to grow. I want to just stay here in this little box that I'm in. No, he's growing us. Why? Because he loves you. If you're a parent, you understand. Do you want your child to remain immature for the rest of his life? No, you want him to grow up. You want him to mature. You want him to engage the responsibilities that are set before him or her. You want him to be faithful with what will be entrusted to them. You want them to have success in life. That's no different from God. God wants that. He's our Heavenly Father. He wants us to grow mature. He wants us to be able to inherit all that He has. So the question is, when famine comes, when difficulties come, when trouble comes, when trials come, where do we turn? What do we do? Add to that the possibility that those who we serve, those who are on the side watching and observing our life, those people are going to be blessed by what God does as we walk with him. Jesus says, go make disciples, doesn't he? Part of making a disciple is to be an example. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. The question is, am I, am I willing to be in the midst of a famine, not give up, trust God, believe in him, he is with me. God, you're with me. I know you're with me. You said you were. I don't feel it, but I believe it. And I know that somehow you are going to work this thing out and you're going to bring me through this famine and you said you would bless me. Look in your own life right now. What, what could constitute a famine in your life? What would constitute a threat to your security, your, your hopes, your future, your, your life? What would constitute a famine? Ask yourself this question. Will I stay? Will I trust him? Or will I flee? Will I lean on my own understanding? Will I flee to some Egypt? Or do I want to see God glorified in my life more than anything else? And do I want to grow and mature and be a stronger, wholer person, more like Jesus? Or do I want to remain small, self-absorbed, and get crabbier and crabbier and crabbier? Because that's what happens. Beloved, trials are inevitable in a fallen world such as ours. Trials are inevitable. Misery doesn't have to be. 
we can rejoice. You heard me say this again and again because it's repeated again and again and again in the scriptures. It's hard sometimes. Nigh on impossible, if you will. But nonetheless, that's what we are commanded to do. That's our response. We can rejoice. You say, how can you possibly rejoice? You don't know my circumstances. You can rejoice in the midst of those circumstances because you know you're living by faith that there is a God who loves you and is with you and will never leave you and he will bless you and he will use all those things together for your good because you love him and you've been called according to his purpose. So therefore, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter gives us this window into God's purpose and will. Speaking of trials and that first century church, you recall if you were with us in our study in 1 Peter, those people were under terrific trial and persecution. Their very lives were at stake. And Peter says these trials have come so that, now notice this, your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, even though gold is refined by fire and it'll perish. Gold is one of those inert metals that is just precious and goes on and on and on. Can't burn gold up. But it will perish. But these trials have come so that our faith of more worth than that gold will be proved what? What? What's the word he uses? Genuine. Our faith is tried. It's tested in the fire so that it's proved genuine. You ever wonder? You're sitting musing, thinking, reading your Bible, feeling convicted. And you say, you know, I wonder if I'm really a Christian. Have you ever wondered that? Just me? A couple others? <laughs> On my vacation, I was reading the Old Testament, reading through Isaiah, Jeremiah. You don't want to read Jeremiah on your vacation. <laughs> I'm going, oh, God. I'm sitting there going, God, maybe I'm not even really a Christian. And God said, the fact that you even care about it says something about it. That our faith may be proved genuine. I want my faith genuine. And because I want my faith genuine, I have lots of trials in my life. The famine is going to provide the basis for opportunities for Isaac to grow. All of that to say that. Aren't you glad I'm short and to the point? <laughs> now, as far as we know, as I said earlier, this is the only, or the first time, not the only time, the first time that the Lord addresses Isaac directly. And as he does so, he repeats his covenant promises in verse 5, the promises he made to Abraham, he repeats them to Isaac. These are now Isaac's promises. God's faithful to his word. He says, because Abraham obeyed me. That's a, that's a telling statement. In effect, God is calling Isaac. In recalling back to Isaac his father's own life, he is calling on Isaac to manifest the same kind of faith the same kind of obedience as did his father, Abraham. Emulate, walk after your father. Again, just as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, Isaac is different from his father. Different personality, different temperament, they're different people. But in spite of those differences, he can still emulate his father's faith and obedience. Would that, is that a fair statement? Not only, not only that, but God's faithfulness in the past. God is saying, I was faithful to your father. God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present, Isaac, 
as well as the future. I am faithful. I'm faithful to my word. I'm faithful to my promises. Will you trust me? Now, there's some great similarities, as I suggested to you, and I'll leave you to search the chapter for the similarities and the differences, but I just want to recount a couple to you. Uh, The similarities between Isaac's life and Abraham's, one is the famine. Second, as we've been talking about, the temptation of getting out of Egypt. There's a great similarity there. And as we'll see shortly, there's the situation which Isaac pretends that his wife was not his wife, but rather his sister. We've seen that before. And he finds himself in great difficulty, uh, as did his father Abraham. We'll see also that Isaac's herdsmen dispute with the Philistines about access to water and the wells, as Abraham's herdsmen had done also. And then finally, there's a similarity in which there is a friendship treaty between Isaac and Abimelech, just like the one in chapter 21 between Abraham and Abimelech. So, look at verse 7 with me. So the stage is set. There's a famine in the land. God said to him, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. Trust me. Stay in the land. Walk with me. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Here comes the next test. Verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, now, presumably, on reaching Gerar, he had not identified Rebekah as his wife, not said a word. So the men of that area, that community, that district, would naturally look upon her, and presumably she was an attractive woman. And she's unattached, possibly. She's just a sister. So he doesn't say that she is his wife. So the men begin to inquire about her. And he said, well, she is my sister. Why does he say that she is his sister? Because he is what? He is afraid. Had God not just assured him that I will be with you and I will bless you. And at the first hint where he thinks his life might be on the line, he betrays his wife as his sister. What a guy. I mean, you talk about obtuse. Just like his father Abraham, he lies about his wife. At least Abraham's lie was a half-truth because, in fact, Sarah was his half-sister. But God was the God of Isaac as well as the God of Abraham, and God will protect him, and God indeed will bless him as he had promised. You say, yeah, but why would God bless him? He does this stupid thing. God is at work in his life. God is at work in your life and my life. God is faithful to his word. He is working. And so that we would go, aha, aha, And that would create in us, hopefully, a greater sense of loyalty to him when we see his faithfulness to us and win him. We can be so like Isaac, can't we? We find here Isaac. We say, but Isaac, what what about God's will? What about God's will? God wants to... Bless through you the whole, all the nations on the earth. He wants to give you descendants. If you say that Rebecca is your sister and one of these guys marries her, man, it's all over. The line stops right there. God's purposes will, will be done. His will will be done. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 talks about, right, just write that verse down in your notes and Maybe in the margin of your Bible, you can look it up later. Jesus talks about being afraid of men more than God. And how often we can find ourselves intimidated, afraid of men, what they think of us, rather than what God thinks. At that point, God becomes really an afterthought. So here Isaac is really, he's afraid of these men. He wants to save his own neck at risk of losing his wife. And the promises of God, the purpose of God is at risk here. 
at least humanly speaking. Look at this. She is my wife, he thought. The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window, saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Good! You're supposed to lose your life on account of her. I am. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. Husbands, love your wife as... Men, men, finish it. Love your wife as... And men, how much does Christ love the church? He died for the church. So then, we as husbands are to what? Be willing to... Lay our life down for our wife. He had it right. But he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. It's too hard. There isn't a husband around. I don't care how strong you are as a Christian that doesn't wrestle with that. But that's nonetheless, that's where we go. That's the orientation of our life. He's supposed to lay his life down for her. Not give her up. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Now the Philistines are not the most godly people. So this idea of guilt, we don't know, but this may be the same Abimelech of Abraham's time. If that's true, he's very old, and he recollects, remember when God said, you touch Sarah, I'll kill you. Or some commentators think that Abimelech is a dynastic title, like a dynasty. It's a title like Pharaoh. And it may be that this is a, the son or the grandson descendant, and, and certainly there's a recollection from what happened with Abraham and Sarah. So this guy says, man, we don't, why'd you do this? In effect, calling, calling your God's wrath down on us. And these people were very, very superstitious like that. So he had some understanding, and, and so he chides, indeed rebukes Isaac for doing this, Verse 11, so Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Now notice, if you go back to uh, the earlier chapter where Abraham interacts with Abimelech and God comes to Abimelech and says, you touch her, I'll kill you. It's not God who warns Abimelech. Here's Abimelech himself protecting not only Rebekah, but Isaac. Abimelech brings the warning to his people. He says, everybody, don't touch not only her, but him. Anybody who touches them, anybody who dares molest them, you will die. And so he affords protection. Do you see God's hand in this? Here's Isaac trying to save his own life, immature in his faith. God doesn't just wink at it. God takes this very seriously, but God is going to rescue him in the midst of his weakness, and he's going to grow him up and use this occasion we'll see in the next event to mature Isaac. And he uses an unbeliever. He uses an unbeliever in Isaac's life, and with no help from Isaac, certainly, and certainly no expectation from Isaac. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Verse 12, look at this. Now, up to this point, he's had lots of, lots of herds. 
He's a herdsman. He's moving his herds. He's, moving, he's a nomad. He's moving from place to place. But now he's going to settle down and he's going to plant some crops. So verse 12, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold. Why? Because the Lord blessed him. Because the Lord blessed him. Now notice, it's not because God blessed him. Who blessed him? The Lord. Remember I told you a long time ago, wherever you see that word Lord or Lord God in the Old Testament, it's always in connection with covenant relationship. So the Lord blessed him. The Lord is caring for him, protecting him, nurturing him, growing him up. He planted all these crops in in a land where presumably there's still some measure of famine and his crops produced a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. God's creating in him an incentive. He's demonstrating his faithfulness to him. Has God ever rescued you when you didn't deserve it? Made things turn out? You're, you're going, I don't know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, the next day, something, boom, happens. Or you get a phone call or someone comes over. And I mean, the, the story is replete. The church is replete with stories like that. People who've been rescued from the, from the uh, situation, uh, resources they, they never even dreamed of. Indeed, God is with Isaac, blesses his crops a hundredfold because he's in covenant relationship. He's in covenant relationship and God is faithful to his promises. But not only that, verse 13, the man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. See, there's a flip side of, of wealth in a, in a fallen world. It, it brings Wealth carries its own problems, doesn't it? You get all sorts of people becoming envious of you, jealous. Human jealousy can separate even the closest of friends, can't it? So to guard against that, when your neighbor, your friend, is blessed by God inordinately for no particular reason, and you really know them and they don't deserve it, You rejoice for them. You rejoice for them and you thank God. God, thank you for blessing so-and-so. Thank you for blessing my brother-in-law, that guy. (laughs) Because when you thank God for his blessing in their life, it guards you from jealousy and envy. It guards your heart. And so what happens is that the the Philistines envy him. And because they envy him, they're going to drive him from the land. They're going to try to get rid of him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up and filled them with earth. And then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you become too powerful for us. You know, there's something about ancient wells. These are the wells that Abraham's servants had dug. These wells had been productive for a long time. They were good wells. And Isaac, we'll, we'll see in the next, next couple of verses, he lays claim to them. But the Philistines are so envious, so jealous, and, and Isaac is becoming more and more and more powerful, more and more and more prosperous. Even now Abimelech says, get out of here because you're too powerful for us. Old wells, ancient wells. We don't need new truth. We don't need new teaching. We, beloved, return to the old and tried and true wells of the faith Wells that have proved again and again and again for generation after generation after generation where believers have drunk from those wells and were satisfied. We need to return to the wells that have proved faithful again and again. There's so much that competes for our attention. There are books to be read. There are sermons to be heard there are all these things but when and when will we sit down and quietly read and drink from the well that has proven true 
There's a, a huge cry in the church, the modern church, especially in the West, for new things, new things. I marvel. I, I hear, I had a couple last night who come back from living away and they had trouble finding a church that would just teach the Bible. They're into everything else. They're, they, they, they're, they're, it's like a theater, you know. It's, but they're thirsting. They're thirsting from the ancient well of the truth. And there are some, there are some who will clog up those wells. Some who don't want us to become influential. Some who do not want us to be salt and light in our, in our communities and in our business areas, in our government. Our intention is not to make people be a Christian. Our intention is to lead people to Christ whom the Holy Spirit has already convicted of their own sin. Our intention is to rescue a few from the fire. God's called us to do that. We're not here to impose our views on anybody. We're not here to overpower people. We're here to serve them. That's our challenge. And there are some who, who don't like that, who don't want us, and they will seek to fill the wells and drive us from the land because they don't like us. We know that. And we see it going on in our very culture today. So we'll have too much influence. God, that we would have more influence. Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away. He moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Now this is important. He reopens those wells the Philistines had clogged up. And he gives them the same name his father had given them. The naming process indicates authority over. It's like when you have your kids. Who gives the kids the names? The doctor? Doctor, what shall I call my children? The hospital? The nurse? The state? Not yet, anyway. Who names the children? The parents. It's no different today than it was 4,000 years ago. Naming indicates authority over. So he renames those wells that his father had dug, and he had named them. Isaac says, I lay claim to these wells. These are mine. And they are his. But now notice what happens. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herdsmen used that occasion of Gerar, quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, said, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek, which means dispute, because they disputed with him. And then they dug another well, but they quarreled over the same, that one also. So he named that well Sitna, which means opposition. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, uh, which means room, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. So he opens up those wells, he renames them, he claims them for his own, but the herdsmen of Gerar contest his presence. Could he have fought for those wells? He's strong enough, powerful enough, got more servants, more money. He could, he could afford certainly to hire mercenaries. Could he have laid his claim and said, you aren't driving me from this, this is mine. Could he have done that? Absolutely. Could he have insisted on his rights? Absolutely. But what does he do? 
He chooses, rather than to stand and insist on his rights, amazingly, he chooses the path of peace. Now it's going to get a little bit more difficult. He chooses the path of peace. Do I have rights? Absolutely. The question is not do I have them or not have them. The question is do I insist on them? He chooses not to. He chooses the path of peace rather than insisting on his rights. So he moves away, and you'll see he digs three more wells, the first two of which are again contested. These guys are dogging his heels. And he doesn't argue with them. Finally, they no longer follow him. He digs a third well, and he names it the well of ample room. The question is, how do we treat our enemies? How do we treat those who oppose us? How do we treat those who are antagonistic to us? We pick it. We fight. We take a stand. We argue for our rights. How do we treat them? Isaac is a terrific example. Now notice this. God is training him. God is training him. God is training him to get him to the place where he will absolutely, unalterably depend upon God. Because God had said to him, I will be with you and I will bless you. In spite of all the circumstances... You don't need to be antsy about these wells. You don't need to insist on your rights because there is one who is greater than anybody who is watching over, walking with, protecting you, who has promised to bless you. When that becomes real in your life, let me phrase it this way. When you believe that... I promise that will set you free. Jesus put it this way. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You don't become apathetic. You don't become passive. He's not passive. He's very active. But his, his activity is in his faith towards his God. God is training him and bringing him along just like he is you and I. What are our trials for? for the proving of our faith. Let me read to you from Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Anyone? Can I just hit him once? (laughs) Just let me hit him one time. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now that is not only an ethical exhortation. That is also, if you've been in my class with me, you heard me talk about this, that is also an indication of growth. The fact that you do not pay, repay evil for evil. The fact that you return blessings for cursings. This is... Christ-likeness. This is evidence that you are, in fact, becoming more like him. And it's an active thing. It's not a passive thing. You're not just resigned. Well, I, I guess I just have to, have to do it. It's a whole different dynamic. Bless those who persecute you. Verse 14, bless and do not curse. Verse 17, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Oh, okay, I can do that if God knows God's going to get them. <laughs> His mind to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. All right, God, you get them. I'll just back off here. Get them, God. God want to get him? Does God want to get him? Oh, man, does he ever? He wants to get him saved. So here's your part. 
So rather than you taking revenge, here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, what should you do? You give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you'll, hurt, you'll heap burning coals, coals of conviction on his head. Let me translate that for you. Kill him with kindness. Ah, but if I do that, that doesn't rip me off. I just know it. They'll take advantage of me. So what? Your life is not your own. You were purchased with a price. It's not about you. We are to be living sacrifices. Once you abandon yourself to God, once you trust Him, nobody has a hold on you. Nothing will grip you. No fear. And you will move through this world with an incredible abandon that will excite you. You want to live an exciting life? Become a true believer. Not one with one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. But one who's moving forward in faith, trusting God, hardly wait till the next trial. <laughs> right, Laura? It's exciting, isn't it, to live by faith? What are you going to do today, God? (laughs) Turn back to our passage here in Genesis, verses 23 and 24. Notice this. He goes from where he's got these wells in the Valley of Gerar. From there he went up to, this is beautiful. He goes up to where? Beersheba. Why does he go to Beersheba? Well, if you go back to the end of chapter 22, who recalls the events of chapter 22? Was there any kind of significant, traumatic event in chapter 22 to Isaac? Yeah. His father ties him up, lays him on the altar, is about to slay him. Would that be traumatic to you? I hope to shout. Right after those events, when the Lord stays Abraham's hand, raises Isaac back up, provides the ram caught in the thicket for the sacrifice, you recall, after all those events, Abraham takes Isaac to Beersheba. Come on, hon. We're going to go rest. We're going to go spend some time together. We're going to rehearse all this stuff. We're going to talk about it. We're going to praise God. It's a time of fellowship between a father and a son and their God. So, that's Beersheba. Now, in this case, Isaac goes to Beersheba. Why? Because after all of the events of this chapter, I mean, his failure with Rebekah in the land of a famine, having to give over all of these things to the Philistines, the constant harassment, would that get to you? Would you want to kick back and take some time? And if there was a certain place that you could go to, that held in your mind a remembrance of close fellowship with your Father and your heavenly God, would you want to not go there? That's his retreat. He retreats to Beersheba. Now notice this. Verse 24. He gets to Beersheba, and that night... Who comes to him? That night, the Lord. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Man, Isaac probably went up to Beersheba doing this. (laughs) And God reassures him. He comforts him. I'm the God of your father, Abraham. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. 
We made it. I'll bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Now notice verse 25. Marvelous. Marvelous what happens in verse 25. Isaac does three things. What are the three things that Isaac does? After God's reassurance to him. He builds an altar. Worships. Sets up his tent. Digs a well. This is the only recorded time when Isaac builds an altar and worships. I'm not saying it's the only time, but it's the only recorded time in the scriptures that we have. He built an altar and he worshipped. He was closer to God now than he'd ever been. And God had brought him through all these trials and difficulties. God had demonstrated his faithfulness to him. And he's drawn to him up at his retreat in Beersheba. After he worshipped God, then he pitched his tent. Then he dug a well. Seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, and then all these other things will be provided. It's a matter of priority. With Isaac, God is no longer an afterthought, as evidenced by the fact that the very first thing he does is he builds an altar and he worships. What order would you and I follow? Ask yourself that question. Are we more intensely concerned with our temporal needs than we are with, first of all, worshiping him. Ask yourself, what order would I follow? I've gone through all of this. Would I just look for relief and I just want to kick back and rest and I want to have my lunch? And... Or am I going to build an altar and worship? Seek him first. Praise him and thank him. Beloved, if any part of life is to be worth something, it must begin and be covered by worship. Worship. Mike Maffey, I think, talked to you about, when I was on vacation, talked to you about the importance of worship. Did you, Mike? You preach on worship, right? Yeah, I thought so. I read your notes. (laughs) Worship. We come and we... We lift our hands. The first thing we do, the first thing we do is we worship. It's been a hard week. I want to get to my refuge. I want to get to church. I want to worship. I want to acknowledge Him. I want to lift my hands. I want to praise Him. I want to get out of myself. I want to reorient rightly. Because all week long, it's been all about me. And then he plants his tent. He, 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 he puts his tent up. Wow. How significant. A tent. He lived in a tent. Hebrews 11.13 reminds us that Isaac and his family admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. The fact that they would live in tents, they were, they were mobile. point is, they were not rooted in material things. Even though he was a wealthy man, even though God blessed him, this wasn't the end all. He learned now, God first, always. There is a real danger for us that we can become so satisfied with all that we possess that we find ourselves not reaching forward to that spiritual communion to which each of us should seek. Stretching, reaching to him. Because after all, I got it made. I'm comfortable. It's easy. Beloved, if we're not stretching, if you're not feeling the need to reach forward and be in communion with Him, seeking Him, tells you something about where your life is. Now look at verses 26 to 31. You see here the truth of Proverbs 16, 7. 
Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. Look at this. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with his, with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Fikal, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me? Now notice what Isaac says. Since you were hostile to me and sent me away. I mean, what are you doing here? You don't like me. You beat me up. You chased me out. What, what are you coming for? They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. Whoa. What a testimony. We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. Not with us, with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm. Because remember, the Philistines are not a huge big old group yet, a nation. They're just a small tribe. And so they're living in fear because Isaac is growing in power and wealth and such, and so they're intimidated by him. So they're coming and saying, our best chance is making peace for you with this guy. Notice this. That you will do us no harm just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. Huh? And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac, Isaac says, what do you mean you sent me away in peace? What do you mean you treated me well? Listen, you jerks. Does he do that? Look at this. This got to take your breath away. This is called spiritual growth, beloved. This is called trusting God. Isaac made a feast for them. He made a feast for them. And they ate and drank early the next morning. The men swore an oath to each other, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day Isaac's servants came and told them about a well they had dug, and they said, we have found water. Is God still blessing him? Is he still blessing him? I mean, Isaac can't miss. And he called it Sheba, and to this day the name of the town has been Beersheba. Now, the last two verses of this chapter, verses 34 and 35, are interesting. They're interesting because they give us insight into Esau's spiritual sensitivity and sense of priorities. All of a sudden, Isaac, it stops and it talks about Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beery the Hittite, and also Basemath. Is that a beautiful name, Basemath? Brian, how would you like to marry a base math? Oh, base math, I love you so much. Base math. Daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Verse 35. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Hittite women. No common heritage. Didn't believe in the same God. Common practices, no faith. Esau goes outside and marries Hittite women, and these women become a source of grief to his mother and father. You know that we can do things that are a source of grief and rebellion. Actually, verses 34 and 35 are the introduction to chapter 27 because now we're going to see things really heat up at home. The verses just simply demonstrate that Esau was not fit to inherit the blessing as we shall see in the next chapter. Bottom line, God. God chooses weak vessels. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. God chooses weak vessels to bring about His purpose and his plan. And God is working in and through us. And God says to us, as he said to Isaac, I am with you and I will bless you. Now your blessing may not be material, but your blessing certainly will be spiritual. The question is, will I trust him?
Will I trust him? Or will I run down to Egypt? Will I take matters into my own hands? Will I seek to save my life and in the long run end up losing it? Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, for Isaac and the example he is. Help us, Lord, as we read and study to draw out those lessons and those principles and those truths whereby we can, in fact, see the parallels in, Lord, what you're doing in our life. Thank you for your great purpose to save us. And thank you, Lord, for Jesus who died for our sins that we might have life. Lord, we worship you this morning. We exalt your name and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.